But I remember there was a guy that uh, that was going on a trip with us, and he wasn't. I don't remember who this guy was, but he wasn't from our team, and he was bragging about how good his Spanish has gotten. And so we go to a Spanish rest, a Mexican restaurant. Um, somewhere along the way, I, I don't remember if it was when we landed or maybe it was here, maybe it was in Monte Albano before we left. And I remember he was showing off his Spanish, you know. And uh, at one point he made a joke. He said, Donde esta todos mujeres? Where are all the ladies? You know, and then the guy's like, hi. Ah, you know, apparently it was a pretty cheesy joke. And we get down there and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is that guy that's going to like use every phrase he knows. We get down there, and we, we're at the airport, and you're going to exchange the money. You know, you, you get, get some Honduran currency, and he tries to use his Spanish. And the guy just rattles off something so fast. And, and Honduran Spanish is, is like kind of like Southern English. Um, it's proper. It's the best form of Spanish, in other words. And so, and so he, uh, he rattles something off, and uh, – that guy just stood there and looked at him. I knew he didn't understand a word that guy said, and he went, uh, no speaky. <laughs> it's, so I've, I've done everything I can to prepare this text tonight, but I feel like right as I'm about to walk out and, and, and preach this, all I, I feel like saying, uh, no speaky. I mean, this is a really obscure, difficult text. And so, but the good thing is, God is so gracious. The first verse is like the least obscure message in all of Scripture. It is the message of Scripture. Then it's going to move into some more uh, obscure teaching. So we'll just work through it together. Let me give you the main point of the message first. Uh, we'll be in verses 18 through 22. Main point of the message is that in these verses, Peter shows us that Jesus traveled the pathway from suffering to glory to save us. And those who suffer for Christ will be glorified as he was. I'll read it again. In these verses, Jesus shows us, uh, I'm sorry, in these verses, Peter shows us that Jesus traveled the pathway from suffering to glory to save us, and those who suffer for Christ will be glorified as he was. So over the last couple of weeks, in the last few texts, we've talked a lot about submission and suffering. We talked about submission to government. At one point, we talked about what it looks like for, um, for Christian slaves to submit to non-Christian masters. Talked about what it looked like for Christian wives to submit to unbelieving husbands. And those were hard texts to work through, hard to navigate, hard to hear, hard to think about. It's hard to think about submitting to an authority that you know is wrong. Um, and yet trusting that God still is in authority over that. And, and even last week, we got to a point where the message was, uh, the message was that um, when we suffer well, when we live righteously in this life, opportunities are going to be given to us to, sh to share the gospel. Uh, so the example of if, if, a, if a wife, if we, if we go back a couple of weeks, and the example might be a, a wife who loves her husband well, a husband who loves his wife well, that may become a platform for ministry when somebody says, it seems like, I've had this happen before, it seems like your family, you really like each other. Well, it's an opportunity when somebody says something like that to share the love of God, the love of Jesus and the gospel uh, and so as, as we've walked through Peter's teaching on these ideas of submission and suffering, we get to a point tonight where he's going to explain to us that the suffering of Jesus is unique. 
It's unique. It's unique, and there's not only an example for us in the suffering of Jesus, but the suffering of Jesus is the basis for our salvation. So two ideas there. When Jesus suffers, he sets an example for us, and we'll unpack more of that in next week's text. When he suffers, he sets an example for us. He shows us what it looks like to suffer. Think about everything that Jesus endured in, in his time on the earth, and particularly uh, what what Joseph, like what we talked about, what we just talked about a while ago, so cool that we did Lord's Supper tonight. What he's talking about with uh, even the way that Jesus was um, was wrongly accused, and the trials were a mockery of Jewish law and Roman law. I don't know if you remember back when we did that study, but it's like all these Roman laws were broken, all these Jewish laws were broken. Jesus suffered, and, but in that, he shows us how to suffer. So if you're going through a time of a difficult season of suffering or tribulation or ridicule and, and or as a church today in this society and this culture, we're, in, we're learning how to endure suffering in terms or like in, in the way of societal pressure. Jesus has showed us how to do that, but he's also suffered so that we might receive the reward of his suffering. So his suffering is unique, and we're going to look at that. So we're going to break it down into three points, and we're going to start into our text in 1 Peter 3.18. In the text we're studying, it's like Peter's going to pause and remind us in the midst of all this talk of suffering that Jesus is victorious. So we talk about suffering, and we're going to pick it back up next week and talk about suffering, and it's important that we remember in suffering that Jesus is victorious and exalted. That's a context for our suffering. This earth, this life, is not the ultimate context for our suffering. Jesus' exaltation and Jesus' position over all things is the context for our suffering. So let's begin in verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the first point is this. Jesus suffered for sinners so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus suffered for sinners so that we might be reconciled to God. Now it says that uh, Christ also suffered once for sins. This is a significant word structure because the idea is that Jesus suffered for sins. Now, we know that Jesus didn't sin, correct? I mean, that's the foundation to the gospel. Jesus never sinned. The scripture is very clear on this, that he was sinless. He was perfect in every way. He never sinned. The writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in every way just as you and I are tempted, but he never sinned. So if he suffered for sins, then his suffering was substitutionary. He's suffering for someone else's sins, right? We understand that. As Christians, that's, that should be Christianity 101. Jesus is, so his suffering is distinct in that he's not suffering for anything that he's done wrong. He is sinless. So he's suffering for us. So it's a unique word picture. His suffering is unique. Literally, verse 18 is the gospel summarized. It says, it uses the phrase for sin. Jesus suffering for sin. And 44, listen to this, in 44 out of 54 times that this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a sin offering. So 54 times in the Old Testament, the phrase for sin is used. An offering is being made for sin. 
44 of those 54 times. It's a reference to a sin offering. Now, what, what do we know about Old Testament animals? Well, Old Testament animals provided a substitute, a sacrificial atonement, praying for the sin of people. Now, if you go back and study the Old Testament, it can be confusing sometimes. I grew up in a church where if you grew up in an independent, fundamental church, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on Old Testament teaching, but it's often misappropriated or misapplied in the context of the New Testament believer. And when we go back into the Old Testament and we look at what happened in the sacrificial system, what would happen is people would sin, and so a priest would stand before the people with a sacrificial animal. He would take the blood of that animal and he would sprinkle it on the people, signifying that the sin of the people was coming under the life-giving blood of the animal. And so what was happening in that moment is a couple of things. The animal was a substitutionary uh, sacrifice. So the animal was a substitute for the people. In other words, the animal was suffering for the sin of the people. Check. We get that? Okay. This is Christianity 101, but just this should never get old to us. So literally never get old to us. So the animal is a substitute. Second thing is the animal is dying because there has to be death to cover the consequences and wages of sin. Wages of sin is death. Blood brings life. The sprinkling of the blood is that the life-giving blood gives life to that which is spiritually dead. So, so just as death comes from sin, life comes from blood, there's this powerful transaction that's taking place. So the animal dies and is a substitute for us so that the wrath of God is appeased. And then the last thing is it's a substitutionary atonement. Atonement just means that the animal is bearing the wrath of God. Well, Jesus is the final sacrifice. We know this, right? We don't sacrifice animals. If you show up at Red Oak on any Sunday, and there's a box of chickens up here, and there's a funky-looking altar with some little winged angels and a big box, somebody tells you that Aaron's staff and some manna is in that box, and you, your mind goes straight to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And how bad that freaked you out when you're in third grade and watched that at the, at the Main Street Theater in Waynesville, North Carolina. Had dreams about it for weeks on end. You pictured them German dudes melting when they saw them demons coming out of that box. And it messed you up. You show up here and that's going on, you need to leave. Because there's something's happened. Aliens hypnosis, it ain't us standing up here, okay, right? Because that's done away with. That system's done away with. Why is it done away with? Because of what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So the sacrifices of those animals for, for all of those years and centuries were not sufficient to like once and for all deal with the sin of people. So you had annual sacrifices and weekly practices that the people had to go through and worship. So there was an insufficient nature to those sacrifices, but God was gracious in that he would still receive the sacrifices if they were offered in the proper way. So God was being gracious, he'd receive sacrifice. Hebrew 13, 11, and 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus is the final sin offering. The Old Testament system of sacrifice and animals 
is abolished. It's done away with. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's brought to completion in Christ. The idea is there was a system in place that Jesus brought to total completion. And so it's, 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 we don't do that anymore because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. Now, concerning the nature of Jesus' sacrifice, it says in verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. What does that mean? Well, that's the idea that when we become Christians, Jesus takes our sin and he puts it to death and we receive his righteousness so that when we stand before God to give an account for our lives, we stand on the merit of what Jesus has done, not on the merit of what we've done because he's given us his righteousness. So this means that you and I in our lives, we don't have to, if you're a Christian, you're like you're a Christian based on what Jesus has done, not based on what you've done. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us. And it brings us, he says, to bring us to God because Jesus suffered and died for us. We're literally given access to God. So in the middle of all this talk of submission and suffering and everything, Peter's letter is heavy. He said, hey, we have access to God because Jesus has died, fulfilled the Old Testament system of killing animals, done away with that. He's like, we are made priests and Jesus is our high priest and we have access to the Father because what Jesus has done. If nothing else this week goes your way, remind yourself every day you have access to God because of what Jesus has done. Through the blood of Jesus. Like you are ringing, dripping, sopping wet with the blood of Jesus every day of your life. You're drenched in it. We're like, like it's, not, it's not a sprinkling of blood in symbolically the way it was for the animals. You know, when, when even in the Old Testament, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if this has any association really other than for me it's a good picture. In the Old Testament system, there was a sprinkling of the blood. You know, the hyssop would be dipped in blood and the people would be sprinkled with it. And uh, David alludes to this when he says, uh, purge me with hyssop and I'll be whiter than snow. He, it's the sprinkling, flick the blood out on the people like this, which would freak people out in, in today's society, but those people recognize what that was. The picture of Jesus' blood is that we are drenched and washed in the blood of Jesus. We sing about it. We're washed in the blood. We're purified through the cleansing effect of the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus didn't die by hanging. That's why Jesus didn't die by lethal injection. The shedding of Jesus' blood is significant. That's why Peter refers to him as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died in our place. He stood condemned. He never sinned, and he stood condemned in our place, and he died for us. So he's our sacrifice. So the first point is that Jesus suffered for sinners that we might be reconciled to God. Verse 19. Verse 19 says this, In which he went and proclaimed to the, to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so now it gets a little tricky. Um, so we're going to talk about this. Second point is this. There's only three points. Second point is this. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and he proclaimed victory over demonic forces and spirits. I'll read that again. Here's the main point in these two verses. Now, we're going to unpack some different views about these verses, but the main thing that we have to get out of this is that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and he proclaimed victory over demonic forces and spirits. So Jesus' resurrection 
was not static. It was dynamic. It was a proclamation, like, like it was accompanied by a proclamation of victory, and he was proclaiming it over the enemy. He was proclaiming it over demonic forces. He's proclaiming it over the spiritual realm. This is wonderful. This is wonderful truth. So he dies in our place in verse 18, in verses 19 and 20. He's raised from the dead, and he proclaims victory over these forces. So I'm going to do some reading here to make sure I stay on track. Concerning this text, listen to what Martin Luther wrote. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> Let me read that again. Because before we did Daniel, me and Rob, listen, and I think all the guys did. Me and Rob, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, this one interview that we listened to uh, of David Helm, who did the, the small, we used that one small commentary by Helm. And he said, he said it's, it's not okay for a preacher to say, I don't know. Just Martin Luther. Okay, like. He did more than, you know, like, like he, did, he, he did a few things. I don't know if you've heard of him. Okay. All right. So let me read it again. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So he struggled with a text, so I'm okay saying, I don't know. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to do the best we can. So what we're going to try to do in this part of the text is let that which is clear, verse 18, help us understand what would then subsequently follow, and then that which is clear in verse 22. So 18 and 22, pretty clear. 19 and 20 and 21, a little bit confusing, but I think we can bring some clarity to it, and we can do it pretty briefly. So several views have been proposed through the years. Uh, the first one is the view of Clement of Alexandria, early church father. He said, uh, in this view, he said that Jesus went to hell in his spirit after he died to proclaim the salvation message to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. So Clement of Alexandria, this was accepted pretty pretty widely for a while. Um, he said that Jesus, after he died in spirit, he went down into hell and he proclaimed a message of salvation. The problem is that Peter uses the word proclamation, which is different than the word he uses when referring to the preaching of the gospel. So in the scripture, there's a couple different words that might be used for preaching or proclaiming. One is associated with preaching the gospel as good news to sinners. Okay? Preaching of the gospel as good news to sinners. The other word is caruso, which is the word used here, which is simply a proclamation or declaration. Okay? And so he's using that word caruso here. Peter never uses this word to reference the preaching of the gospel. In fact, New Testament writers don't use this word typically to, when they're talking about the preaching of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel, and calling sinners to repent. They use that other word, uh, which is the, the, the gospel message being preached. Um, he's describing a proclamation of victory, not a gospel message of invitation and repentance. Now, I find it helpful that if the essence of hell is separation from God, then Jesus experienced hell in that context while he was actually on the cross. Separation from God. So if, if we think of hell as a literal place, we can support that biblically. If we think of hell as separation from God and judgment, we can also support that biblically. So the literal place of hell will be a place of punishment 
part of that punishment will be separation from fellowship with God. On the cross, it could be said then that Jesus experienced hell. You following? Tracking? Okay, everybody's good. While on the cross, Jesus experienced separation from God. Doriani points this out, that if, if, if that is the hell he descended into, then he did so before he died and was buried, not after. This disrupts the order of the Apostles' Creed. Second view, the Augustinian view. Um, it was named after Augustine. Some people say Augustine. Around these parts, we say Augustine. Augustinian view, as implied, this was the view held by Augustine. This view teaches that Jesus preached through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. Everybody tracking? Give me some head knobs. Head nods? Okay. So Noah's building the ark, and he's preaching. Let's go back to the story of Noah. What happened at Noah? Okay, let's talk about Noah for a minute because you're reading along. If you're like me, every time I'd read, to Peter, read through First Peter, I'd get to Noah, and I'd be like, what's that, what's that guy doing here? Like, that was a while ago. You know, what's that guy doing here? Okay, so let's go back in the story of Noah. What happens is for a couple thousand years, the earth has been increasingly growing evil, evil, more evil, more evil, more evil. And God's going to bring judgment. And he raises up this one guy, not because that dude is good, not because that guy is faithful, but because God in his sovereignty shows favor to this one man. He extends grace to this one man. He then raises this man up, and he says, I'm going to give you a message. You're going to preach that message. The message is this. Repent or else you will be judged. Repent because judgment is coming. Okay? I always get tickled on for you snowbird people um, on uh, Friday nights. Who, whoever's carrying the end is near picture and running around or, you know, poster board. The end is near. You know, that's that guy on the street corner. The end is near. Everybody's headed for doom. You feel like that right now? Yep, me too. Like, some, like, like it's, it feels like doom and gloom. And so in the days of Noah, his message was one of impending judgment. So Noah starts preaching that in 120 years from now, God's going to judge the earth. Now, This is a crazy story because when Noah starts preaching, there's over a century that will pass with him preaching and no one responds to the gospel message. And so then God brings the flood to destroy the earth. Okay, so that's the context of what was going on with Noah. This view teaches that Jesus preached through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. In this view, Jesus was not personally present, but by his Holy Spirit, he spoke through Noah. Verse 19 again, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought through safely, were safely brought through water. So, In this view, Jesus was not personally present, but he's speaking through Noah. The spirits were not literally in prison, but referred to those who were caught up in sin during Noah's day. This view rules out the idea that Jesus descended into hell between his death and resurrection. This view is held by many faithful scholars and Christians, and I guess it's an acceptable view. The problem here is with the use of the word spirits. Here's why that's a problem. We're going to see it in the next view as well. The word spirits that is used here is a reference always in Scripture to angelic beings. When human human spirits are referenced, it's it's the word for souls. So human souls, there's a different word that's used in the word that's used here of spirits. 
Okay, so he seems to be referencing angelic beings, spirits. Number three, the view of Cardinal Robert Bellarmine in the 16th century. This is the view that most Catholics hold to. In this view, Jesus went to release the souls of the righteous who repented before the flood and have been kept in limbo, the place between heaven and hell where the souls of Old Testament saints were believed to be kept. This view is unacceptable for a number of reasons, but primarily because the Scripture nowhere supports the idea of limbo or purgatory. Once again, the word for spirits that Peter uses always refers to angels, particularly fallen angels. He doesn't use the word for souls, which is what always refers to the spirit of humans. Number four, the Friedrich Spita view. In the 19th century, a popular view developed that Jesus went between the death and resurrection. So Jesus dies, and before he's resurrected, he goes and preaches to fallen angels who are referred to as sons of God in Genesis 6, who had married the sons and daughters of men and were judged by God for this. So in this view, Jesus dies, goes into a place of holding for these fallen angels and preaches to them, proclaims, makes proclamation to them, uh, preaches his victory, and then comes back and goes through the resurrection. Number five, the fifth consideration, um, which we're going to kind of, this kind of, there's, there's a couple directions this could go, and this is where most scholars are going to land, including the leadership of this church and probably most of you guys if you really studied it out. Fifth consideration is, is in this view, the text is describing Jesus' proclamation of victory and judgment over evil angels. Several keys to this view. Each of these terms, through breaking down key words in the text, will help us to understand. Excuse me. So the first one is spirits. This is a reference to angelic spirits, not the souls of humans. So Jesus is preaching to fallen angels. And this, in like, I believe it's clear enough in the text that he's preaching to fallen angels. Imprisoned. So, so he's preaching to fallen angels who are imprisoned. Scripture teaches in several places that angels are held in prison awaiting judgment. Certain fallen angels. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, um, Jewish tradition held that in the days of Noah, when the earth was wicked as never before in history it had been, and never before since, that fallen angels came and had sexual relations with women. The idea of God imprisoning rebellious angels is seen in a lot of Jewish literature, mainly apocryphal literature, the writings of Enoch being, being one of the main ones. But in Revelation 20, verse 7, the Scripture tells us that Satan is bound in prison to await his judgment. And in Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's this biblical teaching that's really celebrated and supported in the apocryphal Jewish writing that God is holding these fallen angels in a holding place, and, and he's got them imprisoned, and they're being held there. Okay, additionally, in verses 19 and 22, we'll see in a minute in 22, use of the word went and has gone is a reference to going into to be exalted. So Jesus is going into something to be exalted, okay? Well, you confused thoroughly yet? Okay, hang, hang tight. Although some scholars and scholarship argues that Jesus went between his physical death on the cross and his bodily resurrection, others will teach that Jesus actually went and proclaimed this after his resurrection. There's different, different opinions on that. An understanding of what happened to the souls of people who died before Jesus' resurrection helps us. Think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus 
How many of you remember that story? The rich man and Lazarus is before Jesus has, has gone to the cross. You've got a place here where where believers are being held uh, who have gone on to be with the Lord, and you've got a place here, a holding place of the damned. It's referred to as paradise and Sheol or Hades, and there's this, there's this great gulf between them. Some will teach that Jesus went into that gulf, and they'll teach this because on the cross, Jesus looks at the, um, at the thief and says, today you'll be with me in paradise, which is a reference to that word. So Jesus takes, you know, he goes into paradise, proclaims victory, and then brings in the resurrection those souls that were believers that were there. That's, that's, that's one view. That's a popular view um, that, that's within Orthodox Christianity today. Um, and it's scripturally plausible that Jesus went into that chasm and proclaimed his victory. Remember, the proclamation was not a preaching of the gospel, but a proclamation of Jesus' victory over sin and death and hell. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus prophesied that he would go into the belly of the earth. This was a reference to the holding place of human souls. Listen to what he said, Jesus talking in Matthew 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is a reference to the Jewish teaching on where the souls of the dead go. And then there are those who would just say simply that Jesus, upon his resurrection, that he proclaimed victory to those demonic forces that were held in captivity. The important thing to remember is this. Jesus has conquered sin and the grave and has defeated our enemies. He has proclaimed victory through declaration over evil forces and demonic powers, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you and I. Bottom line, verses 19 and 20 that we need to walk away with is this. Jesus is victorious. Verse 18, he goes to the cross in our place. He dies in our place. He receives the wrath of God in our place. He drinks the cup of that wrath in our place. He receives punishment and separation, and in our place he hangs there as a man condemned, though he's sinless. He's the sacrifice for us. And in his resurrection, he declares his victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the days of Noah, the, 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 the waters of the flood brought death. And this is, he's, he's making a reference to baptism that I think can be confusing. I, I believe that as a church, most of, the, most of you in this church understand we've, we've, this is something that, we've, that, that you get to see fleshed out. We had a baptism last week. And when, when someone's baptized, the scripture's real clear that the old person is, I, like the old person is dead, the old man is dead, and then there's a new person, a new creation. The scripture will say things like that you're a new creation, you're a new in Christ. And the idea in, in baptism is that when Jesus went into the grave, in baptism we're identifying with his death, right? We all know this. And in his resurrection, when we come out of the water, there's a symbolic cleansing, but we know we know, Red Oak, that the act of baptism is not what's providing salvation, right? Had a girl come here one time. I've told this story before. Had a girl come, two girls. They were high, man. They were high on something. I don't know what they were on. And they wanted me to baptize them because they were seeing demons. And they said, we need you to baptize us right now. And I was like, why? Like, okay, what's, what's the deal? Why are we doing this? Well, they had no concept of the gospel. They had this, they had this thought in their mind that baptism would somehow free them from this torment they were in, and it was this, this wrong idea that baptism was what would save you. 
some of you have an, your own testimony is that you got baptized multiple times because you're like, all right, let's do it again. Let's go get dunked again. Let's do it again. Let's go get dunked again. Like there's nothing about baptism that brings salvation. Remember, it's an act of obedience and it's symbolic. And so he's comparing it to the flood in the sense that at the flood, Jesus purged the earth with water. He brought judgment and destruction. And as Noah and his family went into the ark and came out of that, those waters, you tracking? So Noah and his family go into the ark. The waters come and bring death. And in that death, judgment. And then Noah and his family come out of the ark. We go into Christ. We go into the water. We come out of the water with Christ. And we're free from judgment and condemnation. That's the, that's the parallel that he's drawing. And verse 22 brings us to our third and final point. He says this, Who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? Third point is this, Jesus has now been exalted and has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father and has subjected all demonic forces to himself. Jesus was not only raised from the dead, but he was exalted to his rightful position of authority at the right hand of God. Angels, demons, and all powers are under him and in subjection to him. Again, he uses the word that's translated has gone, just like in verse 19, he used the word gone or went. Jesus has taken a place of authority over those to whom he proclaimed victory in verse 19. So Jesus proclaims victory to the forces of evil, to demonic forces, to principalities and powers, and then he goes to his rightful place of exaltation. If we only worship the resurrected Lord, we'll miss it because he, di he didn't stop with resurrection. The scripture is very clear. Therefore, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in this context, those spiritual beings are in subjection under him. I like the way Schreiner summarizes all of this. For us, the message is as clear as it was for Peter's recipients. Even in suffering, we know that Jesus still rules and reigns and has not surrendered us into the power of evil forces, even if we suffer death. He's not surrendered us to the power of evil forces. So in conclusion, the three points were this. Verse 18, Jesus suffered for sinners so that we might be reconciled to God. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and he proclaimed victory over demonic forces and spirits. Verses 19 and 20. And number three, Jesus has now been exalted and taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father and has subjected all demonic forces to himself. Verse 22. And this is why we have great opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus. He has defeated sin and death and hell and the grave, and he has made a way for us to receive righteousness and eternal salvation. God was so patient with people in the days of Noah. He waited 1,600 years before he brought the message of judgment, and then he had Noah preach a message of repentance for over a century, giving people opportunity to repent and come to him for, and for, for forgiveness and salvation. Today, God is just as long-suffering. There's opportunity now for people to repent and confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus is victorious. What this world needs is Jesus. What you and I need is Jesus. People want to talk about race and politics and sexuality, but they want to reject Jesus and his authority. And we need to remember that Jesus has the authority to save, and he has the authority to demand the worship of even those fallen demonic forces. And he's given us the opportunity not, not just to 
to worship him, but to be in fellowship with him because of what he did at the cross, providing salvation for us.